0: come to the table even if this is hard even if you might put me on blast and like write a mean article and record this thing and push it I'm like keep coming to the table because that's that's love and you don't come to the table that's fear and I think very little grows well out of fear when that's the soil. Yeah, Love is a far more rich and um, nutrient-filled soil for good things to grow out of.
1: It's uncommon good, the podcast where we chat to ordinary people doing uncommon good in service of our common humanity. My name is Pauly Reese, fam. I am delighted to bring you today my pal, the Reverend Chaz Howard, PhD. Chaz is the university chaplain and the inaugural vice president for social equity and community at the University of Pennsylvania, where he serves as one of only three vice president level executives of color. Quick content warning right off the top. We talk a lot about redlining and gentrification, poverty, Christian supremacy, and there is indirect discussion of white supremacy and police violence. So as always, if these things are not right for you to listen to, feel free to switch this one off and we will catch you in the next one. Chaz goes on to talk about growing up in Baltimore, the land history of present day West Philly, moving beyond fear, acting from love, working on the clergy team of the Philadelphia Episcopal Cathedral, a favorite place of mine in Philly, and the still uncertain fate of the Black Bottom community, a historic community of descendants of freed slaves currently being displaced from their homes by gentrification. This is a big one. This has so much weight and beauty and challenge all at the same time. Please enjoy my conversation to Chaz. It's January, and I'm very aware of the fact that both of us walked in to the studio today in very light clothing attire. Does it, is, is, is it weird that we've had multiple 60-degree days in Philly in January to you?
0: It's a great question. I mean, I, in one sense, there's the kind of snarky comment I could make around Philly weather. And, you know, Philly with these um, pump fakes into winter and then a flash yeah. of spring and then, then a blizzard after that That is happens here in Philadelphia. Um, and it's part of what we love about Philadelphia is you really never know and you get all the seasons twice here. That's true. I think there's an answer around global warming and yeah. the way that it feels like weather patterns are changing and getting harsher. And there's something very frightening about that. Yeah. Um, and I think it's possible that both can be true and the emotions behind both can be true. The the fear and the, the grief is probably a better description on one hand, and then the kind of um, benevolent shrug of the, that's, um, that, that's Philly, you know, um, that that comes. I mean, this was, over the holidays, we sort of had really, really, really chilly days where it was single digits here and that very cold for Philadelphia. And then days where you know I'm going for a bike ride in 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 short sleeves, which was glorious. Within like a week of each other, um, so it's it, it's deeply complicated, and it's I don't want to say it's okay that it's complicated, but I think it's okay to feel all the feelings of complexity around something like the weather.
1: When we talk about those experiences of the fear and the grief, like those complicated feelings around. Existential things like the weather. Bird. Can you say a little more? What you mean by fear and grief?
0: I think the grief in that you know, middle age. Sure, I think there's a part of me that recognizes there will be consequences to actions of my age bracket and people above above us. That I probably won't feel the the great burden of. Um, just because of life expectancy, but my kids and grandkids and the, potentially the students I work with might, you know, I, yeah, I don't, I don't think the world will be terribly, terribly different 20, 30, 40 years from now, hundred years from now. Yeah. You know, I, it certainly our coastal cities might be really different. And the, yeah. the, the, the beating we take from hurricanes and tornadoes and heat waves and storms like that, a generation or two after us yeah. might feel in a very different way. And I, and I'm sad yeah. about that. And I, and I, and I, am so not afraid about next summer's weather, but mm-hmm. I'm more concerned about what this means for those coming after and what this means for animals 50, 100 years from now.
1: And what sort of animals, maybe, maybe won't be here? I don't know. Yeah, that that's kind of that that feels like a bummer to me. It's happy. We we serve the area of University City. We talk about land acknowledgement of being on land unceded from the Lenny Lenape tribe and the Black Bottom community. Conversations I'm sure we'll visit in in, in our chat, but. Thinking about West Philly, historically, in the areas around Penn, a lot of the residents tend to either work for the university or tend to be in a space where their lives are significantly impacted by the university's concerns and business. And many of those residents tend to be in a unsustainably lower income situation, I, I I think then what may necessarily be morally just, I am consistently emotionally impacted by the thought of how our, our neighbors are, are
0: potentially already being impacted by climate change. Um, it's a word, you know, the scholars who, pursue environmental justice and activists who pursue environmental justice talk about um, it's disproportionately black and brown and poor white people yeah. who are most impacted by um, climate injustice and, or climate inaction. Yeah. And so, you know, those of us who can own homes all around the country, in the middle of the country and all around the world, don't feel the same sting. Others who may be in certain... Um, more impacted spots are already feeling the lack of access to clean water. Yes. Already feeling um, terror from a hurricane. Yeah. You know, those of us who sort of live in the suburbs two hours from the coast, a hurricane's okay and if it messes up our roof we can sort of replace it again and it's okay. Others, man, you might lose your home. Yeah. And and your life. And there, there's a real class and racial dynamic to it and you're absolutely right that it, it disproportionately hurts certain people, particularly the poorest among us in quote the poorest major city in America, Philadelphia, yeah, like my my seminarian days,
1: like uh, out in uh, West Haven and Gulfport and seeing seeing how how Hurricane Sandy sort of mm. messed them up, looking at hollowed out shells of restaurants and 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 homes that were never even demolished because there's just everybody left like. Like and 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 then, uh, thinking back to 2005, the Lower Ninth Ward. In, oh uh, boy! Yeah, um, I think I, I I think I was last down there in 20, oof, 2015, and there are still huge swaths of of that town that are just still still abandoned. There's like um. My, my uncle tells a story of how FEMA just can't, just can't get to those places to assist with the damage and to assist with the, the demolition component of recovery to be able to get to a level, (laughs) legitimately a, a level playing field so that regrowth and rebuilding can happen. I, I I think we forget how much work the work of regrowth means the the tearing down of old things that and the the uprooting of old physical things and perhaps patterns of life that are no longer serving us well. Preach. We are taping at a time and in a location where. There are a lot of difficult feelings around the University City Science Center, around um, some of the development that's happening here that is displacing, realistically speaking, the last remnant of the Black Bottom community. Historically, that's the community that's lived here of the descendants of freed slaves who lived west of the Schuylkill River and made their homes and were continuing to be further displaced when the major bridges got built across the river and uh, the University of Pennsylvania migrated from Society Hill. You being a person operating at the vice president level of Penn that you've had a very vulnerable seat to bear witness to all of that. Mm-hmm. And all of that, all of that story, all of the, all of that coverage is, is widely available on news outlets, in social media. Um, So, so I'm less interested in, in like the university space of this question, but I have to imagine that that's
0: a lot to carry. Mm hmm. Yeah. There's, there's a lot, there's a lot to say, you know, and I, it, it's fascinating. I, I think it's right that you framed it in one sense in the shadow of our conversation around New Haven, West Haven, um, Yale and, and, and those communities, New Orleans, in some sense, Tulane to a different degree in those communities. I think yeah, Tulane yeah. there's a similar story of Baltimore with Hopkins and Baltimore and Columbia and Harlem. Like there's these relationships between um, oldish, very affluent institutions um, that are really complicated, and that ha- can bring a lot of good and bring a lot of injury to a community, um, with what's absolutely in real time happening here in West Philadelphia, and uh, and and the role that Penn and, and Drexel and before it became St. Joe's kind of pharmacy and like, you know, um, or I guess the University of Sciences um, and other institutions to have played in changing West Philadelphia in some, in some really complicated ways, you know, I think it, I'll speak very personally on it. I think as a, as a, as a black man who's from Baltimore, but has lived in Philadelphia for almost 30 years now seeing injury to communities that are predominantly of color and predominantly black hurts full stop. It hurts, you know, and, um, you know, I saw and felt the effect of gentrification in Baltimore growing up. I mean, certainly I was a kid, and so I think I processed it in a very different way, but seeing neighborhoods change, um, and you know, some of those changes were like, "Oh, cool. Like there's some new restaurants here, and I, I guess it looks a little cleaner, and some of those changes were a little more frightening where there's a whole lot more cops around here now, and wow, those my friend's house isn't there anymore. And so those are really hard. You know I think um, the story of the black bottom is one that my office and I and others on campus have really tried to lift up in the name of historicizing it and memorializing it because there were so many people who just never even heard of it. Uh, and I, this is not a tangent, but I think it's similar with like the move bombing of there are just things that need to never evaporate We'd stories we need to always tell the good side of the black bottom of like, so this is a, this is a strong neighborhood with families and businesses and congregations and. Traditions that shouldn't be forgotten. Yes, and then the sort of the the sad story of displacement yeah. and people being pushed out, or landlords sort of selling out and not caring about their residents. Um, I think the role that the official city of Philadelphia played needs to be incorporated into it too. Yeah, I think a lot of this gets hung on Penn's neck and the city. Literally, city council sort of had had and has a role in all this. Yes. But then the kind of contemporary side of, you know, university city townhomes, which um, is in the area that would have been described as the Black Bottom and was built in response to the displacement and destruction of the Black Bottom, now facing its own destruction with its owners attempting to sell and displace people there. And we can talk a little bit more about Pens' role and, and not role and all of that too. But just the emotional side of the terror of being told that your home ain't going to be here next year is a nightmare. Yeah. That the place you live and potentially raise kids and have your friends and it's next to the subway you take and it's close to yeah. the hospital you go to and your job is right there and you're used to it. That, hey, we're selling this for the owners to say is is frightening and upsetting. Yeah. And again, overwhelmingly this, uh, overwhelmingly hitting black people. Yes. It really, really hurts. It really, really hurts. Um, and the question marks around what's going to happen as of this recording is, is tough. We just, I'm not sure how this plays out. I mean, I, I think the owners have sort of made their decision and aren't changing their mind with no matter what amount of pressure, public and private. Um, and and I grieve that, you know, it's certainly their right to do that, but I sure have my own personal opinion of, I don't think this is being done well. And yeah. as well as it could have and should have been done. And um, so so it's, it's sad. The whole thing's very, very sad. It is just
1: profoundly sad Um, there's a moment that just needs to be acknowledged. Like it it just, just needs to be acknowledged that like these things are really, really heavy, but it does need to be acknowledged that the role of institutions like Penn, as you say, and Drexel and the Science Center and University of the Sciences, St. Joe's, those are not the only side of the story but it certainly feels like with the coverage that has been done in the news that they seem to be
0: the fall guy. Well, I mean, and and I think justly and unjustly, you know, I think justly in the sense of uh, these were institutions that played major roles in Gentrification is almost too light a word. Yes. And displacement of neighborhoods, not just the Black Bottom, by the way. There are were, there were a couple other sort of ethnic enclaves along along this path that have that aren't here anymore. Yes. Um, and the result of those actions fifty, almost sixty years ago, in part are the cause of where we are today. Some of this is displacement, some of it is white flight. Too and so they, you know, there was sort of a um, like a strong Italian neighborhood in West Philadelphia. That uh, as as black people moved more from kind of uh, the ward where Du Bois does a Philadelphia Negro to West Philadelphia, that white flight went further west um, into the suburbs. Some of that in kind of South Philly. So there's other reasons they left. Penn also sort of built these high rises for student dorms in I guess what we used to call Superblock that was that part, I don't think would have been described as a black bottom back then. I think there's an argument to made that it was a black bottom, but those were, um, there was like a small Jewish neighborhood there. I think another sort of Eastern European little neighborhood might be too strong. A couple blocks of different groups there that aren't there anymore either. Yeah. Um, and it's worth noting a lot of this transition happened in different ways. Some of this was landlords wanting to cash out and homeowners wanting to cash out and seeking out the university and the city and and happily leaving. Yeah, And some of this was um, what we would almost call eminent domain that the city sort of takes over for city purposes that is far more traumatizing and far more scary. And I think that's more the story of the Black Bottom than it is some of the other neighborhoods that just aren't here anymore. And then there's stuff that kind of um, is from turn of the century there right on the water there was something called like blockley house it's this is mostly where like penn health system is right now and it was kind of like an almshouse slash um sort of like mental health facility and there was sort of some um kind of legal stuff going on there too that ultimately was not healthy and was not meeting code standards that kind of needed to be displaced and knocked down um, but that's a part of the history that's not there anymore and then, and then they put the The convention center there and then you put Penn's hospitals in there. There's no remnant of Blockley House left. It's just Chop and Penn left. Um, That too has been displaced in a different way. Um, And as you did at the beginning of our conversation all of this was Lenni-Lenape land before all of that Um, and and, and forest and swamp that had animals and like that has also been knocked down, pushed out and is a part of the history. Last little thing I'll say um, this is not just the story of Philadelphia and West Philadelphia. This is the story of America. And it's important to name that. I don't think we are any different from New York City yes. and Baltimore and DC yes. and Boston and then other sort of major cities that have pushed out native populations and pushed around people of color either out of metropolitan areas or. Lock them into metropolitan areas. Um, That's not to overnormalize or to escape, but it's not lost on me that when people give tours of the black bottom, when the the very few people who lived there who were still alive, and I mean, you're talking about septuagenarians, octogenarians at this point, yeah, or the kids of people who lived in the in the bottom, or are still alive. They often walk right here on Market Street, Yes, kind of between 34th and 38th, but especially 36th and 37th Street. And they would say that we are recording this in the heart of what was the Black Bottom. Um, and it's complicated. I mean, there's a lot of, some might say a lot of good that's happening here with research and technology and jobs that are here. And the education that's always happening, yeah. and yet um, the, the black families that lived here, that rented from homes here, and the few that owned homes here, don't have a lot to show for, um, and don't have a lot of don't have the same access that a lot of us do yeah. with with you know our access cards and and financial resources, and um, it's it's it is it's it's complicated and it's sad. I'm reminded of Walter
1: Palmer's work, yeah, um, and, uh, he, he, I think he, he recorded a, a tour with the local NPR affiliate, um, we'll link to it in the description, but, and, and certainly, um, we're both affiliated with the cathedral, also. Shout out. Of, of the neighbor <laughs> the neighborhood, I'm sure we'll get there at some point, but, um and and the community members that have told their stories who live in the townhomes as as well i hope in engaging this piece of conversation is that i don't think we've had the opportunity to participate in we don't we haven't had the opportunity to see certainly in the media as someone who lives and works in this neighborhood at least for me is opportunities to hear this story in a longer format because it's sound bites, it's social media, waltz, NPR video interview is five minutes long, and you 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 can't even, I mean, that's a solid, that's half of a moth story. You can't you can't tell a story in in five minutes. So I think, even just this part of the story to have a little bit of extra time to just tell a little bit more of the narrative feels important mm-hmm. feels very very human in a way Feel, feels very anti anti social media ironically for a
0: podcast and 100% you know if you ask someone to tell me about your family in 5 minutes you, know, like what, that you don't come close to doing it justice. Yeah. Um, or even, you know, tell me about your neighborhood where you grew up in five minutes. I can give you some bullet points of the neighbor there, kind of what it looked like, what it's near, but that doesn't capture it. Um, and I'm not sure what a million of time could, but certainly not five minutes. You're right. And certainly not a few tweets or anything. Um, and neighborhoods like the Black Bottom, neighborhoods like West Philadelphia and and what is called University City are comprised of individuals yeah, who have their own stories of where they went to school, what they find joy in, uh, their own quirks, their own vocations, um, not just milestone moments in a neighborhood where buildings came down and buildings came up. So your your phrase of, we need to do a better job of affirming the humanity in these stories. is a beautiful call. Um, And that to be fair, needs to go in every direction too, because I think that some of the criticism of, of Penn and Drexel, and I can only speak about Penn, these also are institutions made up of human beings with their own dreams and their own, um, hopes and their own shortcomings and their own personalities. A, B, you know, a place like Penn is comprised of twenty thousand students. Yeah. Another forty to sixty thousand employees. Yeah. Most of whom don't sort of have an active role in the decision making of stuff. You know, the average nineteen-year-old who's here trying to become a doctor or an engineer wasn't alive when this happened. Doesn't have any decision and. And is and many of whom are advocating on behalf of UC townhomes, for example, um, which is which is amazing. Um, but all to say, like to complicate and to humanize these conversations is is a beautiful challenge for all of us.
1: I want to lean into uh, a a personal aspect of this uh, to this 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 project of humanizing this was an uncomfortable moment for me um, as I was commuting home Um, I tend to I tend to ride ride my beautiful little little periwinkle blue folding bike throughout the city but uh, sorry Penn Police I do tend to ride my bike up locust walk after hours and on the weekends sorry Um, (laughs) apologies you and a lot of our students (laughs) (laughs) Um, you had the unfortunate circumstance of being personally doxxed in uh, this situation um, given the visibility of of your role as chaplain um specifically like technically speaking in in your role as vice president um I've seen like just really awful awful um posters of of, of you of people people posting um, your staff photo with your email address. And in some cases, I, I think at least your office number, maybe your, maybe your personal phone number. That also seems like an incredible weight to bear. And I, I wonder, um, if you can tell us a little bit about what dealing with that has been like.
0: Uh, I appreciate the the gentle and loving way you asked the question. Uh, I think there would levels to it. I think that there's the surface level answer I would give would be um, one shouldn't take these things too personally. Ooh, um, some of it comes with a badge, and leaders of institutions are criticized. And you know, if it wasn't me, it would be whoever would be in this role. Sure. And um, university presidents and vice presidents and provosts, bam, this comes to the territory, and like you need to know it's coming, whether it's about gentrification and affordable housing, or the food and the dining halls, or you know our endowment and our investments, and like just anything, and and it will happen again. On one sense, with the next set of issues, that um, that's part of it. You know, to not to over uh, elevate this, but it it had it gave me a, a brief moment of compassion for our former president, President Trump, and you know I uh, remember being in D.C. at a demonstration protesting little kids in cages at the border, and you know holding up signs talking about President Trump and tweeting about him in ways that were certainly not. I don't think mean, I don't think I was making fun of him personally. It was more deep criticism of, of him. And I was like, yeah, it it doesn't feel good having your name out on anything like that. It stings. And I, I, I don't think these are the same issue at all. And the president of the United States is really different than one of 20 random VPs at a university. It's certainly very, very different, but it, it, it gave me a little pause on that. the, The deeper answer, you know, is it, um, more than anything, it makes me sad because there there are a couple of things to say. In one sense, and I don't want to sound dismissive, but, you know, 18 to 22-year-olds, um, brains aren't necessarily fully formed and sometimes don't see how complicated issues are and don't always think through the consequences of what they do. And so this is why we have frat kids who jump off a roof into a kiddie pool of Jell-O thinking, this seems fun. And, you know, 10 minutes later, they've broken their leg and they're in the hospital. And they yeah. didn't think that, okay, you know, that's, uh, we were all 19 at 1.2. And I think some people thinking through how this, putting someone's email address and poster up might hurt them or their families. Um, maybe they didn't think that through. Two, I think these are also righteous causes. You know, and, and particularly around affordable housing, divestment from fossil fuels, our relationship to public schools. Like these are, I think these are good human beings fighting for good causes that I agree with on almost every point. And I think I, and I am proud of them and I'm, I think they're dope and I think this is fantastic. And I have close relationship with some of the students involved and then I'm cheering for them. Um. And yet I'd be lying if I didn't say it didn't sting, it yeah. didn't hurt, you know, um, it hurts because I think it, it doesn't, I don't need pats on the head, but it doesn't capture the work me and some of the other people are, are trying to do on the inside on behalf of the same causes and to treat us like the enemy, uh, it hurts and I think misses the truth in these things. To what felt kind of cruel that the, at first, the only faces put up were two black administrators. Yep. And like no one else. And then later, like the white president's face gets put up. Yes. Later. Yes. um, And not the people who actually do control our investments. The people who actually do make decisions about our relationship with affordable housing and community. Like, yes. I, I have no decision making power in any of this at all nor does the like dean of student affairs vice president vice provost of student affairs yeah it has nothing to do with these decisions but you put those two black faces up and it and that's I, I'm not saying that that was shade in of racism at all but I think it's one didn't think through the way that that looks and, and the, the cruelty of that um, there are only very very few black administrators at the university yep there are I'm the only black male vice president. I'm one of the people who actually agrees with folks out there who are doing this, this stuff, you know, mostly you may disagree on tactic and details, but like I'm with you and to come at me, like I'm on the other side, like really hurt. And yet, you know, I too was a passionate student activist who didn't always think things through. And or, I should say, and didn't always understand how complicated these things can be. Um, so it's it's deep love on my side. it's and 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 I think it's deep love on their side, too, but yeah, I think people see what would be described as kind of public shaming as a tactic. Um, that there's a hope that that works. and it and it's not it doesn't work here in this situation, if anything. It builds resentment and shuts yeah. down conversation. That was a lot. Sorry. <laughs> no. Um, I mean, if my body language is tightening up too. I'm sorry.
1: No, no, you're good. I mean, th- like these are uncomfortable things to talk about. And I'm grateful that that w- we can we can sort of tease out a little bit of them because these are complicated things, and like these are the these are the ways that we start to humanize each other that we we have these uncomfortable conversations in in the safest way that we can um, this might be a little bit too close to the vest um i i don't know if it is or not um because the, the this has happened to me as well um in sitting in asian populations usually our conversation is around i'm a korean adoptee i don't speak which means i don't speak korean and a lot of my indigenous traditions are lost to me um and i'm experiencing them more as a tourist Mm -hmm. um and i think the question so so the question as as you've identified yes the two posters that have been posted throughout the the city the university city most of them have been weathered down because they've been up for so long but you identified that those two posters capture the faces of the two most prominent, perhaps. I don't, I I don't know if there, there are any other black administrators at the VP level, at the C-suite level. Mm What? What? There we are. um, Besides the two of you. So, are, do we live with the mediascape that we have right now? Are we living in a time where there's room to tease out the uncomfortable nuances of the issue of misplacement of racial pain? Because it, it, it certainly seems like people are trying to draw attention to the issue and it seems like there is this tinge of traitorism that people are trying to point to. I don't know the issue enough for my opinion to really matter. But identifying the fact that this is what is being leveraged against you. um, Do we at least have the working conditions to tease out the nuances of of that conversation? Or do we still have to build that foundation to have
0: that level of conversation? It's a rich question. I mean, I think I I would further complicate it. In saying that, individuals who are sort of making these sort of claims when actively posting stuff yeah. are students. Yes, and there's a there's not an equal power dynamic between administrator, um, professional, full mid mid midlife adults. And and literally teenagers and twenty somethings who are students, mm-hmm. um, and so I think the kind of critical response that I think I'd feel more comfortable giving to a, a an age peer at the very least. Yeah, um, I would certainly want to hold. I don't, I don't use I don't like violent language, but sort of pull my punches when dealing with like a twenty year old, and 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 I don't mean to sound patronizing when I say that, but I, I try to say that with with love in that, you know, when, when, if one of my kids said something offensive to me in a moment of passion, I'll respond hopefully with a more of a teaching posture and compassion that teenagers have all kind of like ups and downs of emotions. And it was a hard day at school and you don't know what you're doing after like, as opposed to like, if my brother said something to me, like we can have a very different conversation. Um, and I don't say that to be dismissive. It's meant to be said in care in love. In that, um, you know, there, A, B, there's just a lot to say about confidentiality and kind of, um, yes, HIPAA, FERPA, one of those is true for higher ed, of like, I, we also, I've journeyed with a lot of these students and just know a lot more about them. Yes, e, e, their, their ups and downs of life, which hopefully can kind of bring more compassion for me. But also, like, I feel like I see it a little more complicated than they are calling me a, a, sellout, it's like, it's, just, it's, deeper than that because of the life some of them have lived. Yes. And so for me to kind of get into a debate with, with certain students, I, I'm not sure good fruit comes from that. And I don't think, uh, I, I don't think it's the love move, you know, that hurts though. Cause I have a lot of thoughts about it. <laughs> yeah. What is the love move these days? I think the first love move is not hating and and not hurting others. Um, I think is a love move. I think not not punching back. Um, I think listening, I think taking seriously, I think these are love moves. I think sort of staying engaged even when One's utterly exhausted with these very draining conversations. I think trying to figure out, now oh, what's it a uh, uh, Teresa of Avila, sort of old Catholic saint? You know, well, <laughs> it's not a matter of of thinking much. It's uh, do whatever most kindles love in you. Is is her quote? And I think it's trying to figure out. Well, there's certain things we can't do but what can we do in love? You know, I think we, they're not, for example, they're not selling UC townhomes to us. It's not for sale to us. We can't buy them. Is there something else we can do? You know, I think uh, if, if our students are asking a lot of us and maybe we can't say yes to everything, but what can we do? How can we love? You know, there's, uh, I try to, I think it's important for that question to be the guiding compass in most of what we do. What's the loving thing to do right now? What's the love move? Um, it's not an, it's easier asked than answered, I think. Yeah.
1: How do we get to the space of asking more question and and a greater level of curiosity? because that's that's the one thing that i i hear you expressing that i think is disappointingly uncommon uh, i'll i'll even i'll go go further disappointingly refreshing it's disappointing because of the fact that curiosity has to be refreshing i w- i would love for curiosity to be a norm rather than rather than the, the oasis in a desert of cynicism and preconceived notion
0: that I don't mean to sound whatever but I think podcasts help with this kind of a thing you know I think like spaces that are designed to pose questions yeah you know and I think a radically democratized internet and media and social media I think lends itself to being a dialogical space that allows for us to sit across from one another and then and, and dream and learn and ask questions and and laugh and, um, and grieve and unpack things together. Um, obviously not all of us can be on one podcast at the same time, but we can engage. I think that's, I think that's one thing. Um, I think too is, uh, this notion of coming to the table, Mm. it's, uh, we're, we're doing it now. You know, our students are very often demanding meetings with the President, demanding meetings with others. And there was a time I felt like when I was a student, that we often got blown off uh, because they don't have administrators didn't have to come to the table. They could just wait us out because we are going to graduate in a couple of years and leave. Um, I think the posture of most universities now, is to stay engaged with students, even if we're even if we can't work toward a yes let let me hear you out and affirm your not only feelings but your ideas, yeah, um, and do our best, and you know we see things differently, maybe on a whole lot of issues, but we care about you. Uh, I think that translates also into communities um, of let's come to the table, even if this is hard, even if you might put me on blast, I'm like write a mean article and mm. record this thing and push it to like, keep coming to the table because that's that's love. and you don't come to the table, that's fear. And I think very little grows well out of a fear when that's the soil. Yeah. Love's a far more rich and um, nutrient-filled soil for good things to grow out of. So my, uh, my wife, Leah, is a political scientist and so much of her work has been around dialogue and particularly dialogue across difference. Yeah. And, um, you know, she talks about the importance of listening and having compassion and recognizing different life experiences form into the way we vote and the way that we sort of see the world. And and it's possible to hold um, two different positions in tension almost, or at the very least, to have room for two different worldviews until it's not. And by that, I think she would mean like, I we can always come to the table as t- humans unless you don't see me as a human and unless your acts are violent and dehumanizing to me. That doesn't mean you're not human, but it means that it's really hard to share space with you. I think it's similar with ideas too in that it's possible for people to sort of see something like, um, big government, small government differently. I think it's possible to sort of see some really complicated issues out there with some tension, um, pro-life, pro-choice, Israel, Palestine. I think these are hot button issues that people have very strong feelings about. I think it's possible that there can be, um, perspectives on either side. If one of those perspectives is I want to get rid of a certain type of person. I want to do violence to you. I'm not sure I can hold that idea in tension. I can hold the people in tension. But I think that's very hard to do. Maybe It's not so much holding ideas in tension. It's holding perspectives with equal care. Or even go even further. Maybe it's having love. Across difference, even if your idea is a really bad one, like we can, I can love you and we can love each other and I can love and recognize the feelings across the table, even if your your idea makes no sense, you know, and, and if we're going to ramble for one more sentence, I mean, I think I've thought about this with some of the kind of dangerous conspiracy theory, kind of far right QAnon kind of stuff that sure. is... Um, I, I wish I could say this without a judgment scene, but like this is off the wall and it literally doesn't make any sense and it contradicts itself and is is whatever. I don't think we need to take those ideas seriously. I think we need to take those people very seriously and the painful life journey that causes one to fall into that and makes one feel like they need to believe in those things. I think we can love them and care about them without having to, you know, give them any sort of seat at the dialogue around ideas that we need to wrestle with, but we can love them. Hmm. I think there's an answer somewhere in there of, of what I just said. What makes an idea a bad idea? I think you know things by their fruit. And I think if an idea causes major pain to others, certainly aspects of it might be bad. Mm. I think there's some good ideas that have hurt others, too. You know, I think I think the idea of America is probably a good idea, a, a, a democratic nation that takes very seriously the voices of others, the voices of its citizens, um, as opposed to kind of an all-consuming monarchy. I think it's a good idea. But certainly the idea of America has hurt people, too, and the displacement of others. Yeah. I think it's possible for a good idea to be cruel. I think a bad idea, or bad aspects of ideas, hurt people. Um, One. Two, I think that ideas that are just frankly not true, or that are based out of not a different perspective, but that are based out of a lie, um, with the intent of unhealthy gain from that lie, I think is a bad idea. And I think we've seen a good amount of that passionately recently by untrue we mean ideas
1: that are objectively and patently false mm-hmm. okay uh huh. um there we are fair enough
0: <laughs> um good qualifier good commercial, good qualifier this capacity to
1: hold ideas and tension and to love across difference where does that come from for for you it's a good question, I mean, I
0: think a couple thoughts um I think a couple thoughts I, there's a
1: musical number there, like that's <laughs> that, that's a song that's a song that you need to write we'll or write that, uh, yeah,
0: and then um, the the two basses will will sing that, drop some bars <laughs> i mean i I would like to say it was in one sense the way I was educated um in uh in seminary. And I uh, hope oh, I think in college too, in great part, this notion of, um, for example, kind of in a in a in a Christian paradigm, there can be a range of ways to worship God. Uh huh. And one, in some Christian paradigms. in some Christian paradigms, and uh, one doesn't have to be right or even better; they can be different, and they can be. Even intention and can be beautiful intention, um, whether it's quote high church versus quote low church kind of stuff that um, both are really important to me and feel very at home for me, and I can hold them with 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 both arms in love. That's sort of like a gentle example. I think there's a harder examples around, um, you know, growing up in Baltimore in you know, like McCullough Street, which is a block from where Freddie Gray got killed. Yeah. And growing up in black North Baltimore in one sense, and then going as a scholarship kid to a white private school in Roland Park, which is a mm-hmm. uh, sort of a upper middle-class area in, in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And those aren't necessarily different opinions of things. They're just a very different worldviews, different worlds almost. That I felt comfortable and uncomfortable in on both sides at different times. Yeah. And that was just the life I navigated. Um, I think even now, you know, growing up, living as a black man who has been stopped by the police three times in the last five years and feeling the how how disempowered and fragile life can be in those moments. And yet also at this point in life being an upper middle, upper middle class, um, university administrator at a place like Ben. Yeah. And that sort of very interesting tension there, um, of having moments of being pretty poor growing up. Yeah. And moments of sort of, you know, living with real comfort now, um, having that tension, um, I think was deeply formative for me. And has formed the way that I very often see issues. And so if I look at something like town gown, stuff of Penn and Philly, Hopkins, Baltimore, Yale New York, I can sort of see these things with complexity, with the real good that a place that a world-class research institution can bring to the world, i.e. the research that leads to the COVID vaccine, yeah, or, you know, saving lives every day in a health system, we're educating people, like all that. And yet the tension around gentrification and over-policing and lack of access. And like, so I I can sort of see these things with a tension with a, with the, the comp, the complex, I don't know, tinted glasses that I think they need.
1: I want to pivot a little bit. I have this phrase of uh um, a, a city like university city has a lot of ethnic food for white people. <laughs> Never heard that. We have as of a couple of years we have um uh, a halal guys
0: cart um while well, it's a brick and mortar but um your phrase ethnic spots for white people is, is hilarious but kind of accurate for a lot of these a lot of the spots. I mean I think about um, well, I won't call them my name, but I think that there's some spots that uh, if you're looking for an authentic version of that food, I, n- I would go to different parts of the city for it. Oh, yes. Uh, I do yes, yes, that, yes. I think there's some food truck exceptions. Um, I think there's a, a Caribbean food truck that is really good. Um, I think... There's some halal trucks that stand out to me, and that I think people who really um, want a better version I think will find their way to there's a oh man a I think a Moroccan food truck uh like all the name of it, that is really really good, and that's not always there that I really
1: i think is just dope mm. i I would be remiss if we ended the chat without talking a little bit about the Philadelphia Episcopal Cathedral um join us i wonder if you can tell us a little bit of the story why the episcopal church in 2023
0: i think there's a couple of answers the first is it's it's just a beautiful place you know like it and at this season of life um i love a multi century worshipful experience it's it's visually a lovely spot there's just a lot to take in be it stained glass or kind of you know the beautiful deep paintings on ceilings and um, the lighting is cool and the sort of the seating setup is different every season the beautiful baptismal font there and you sort of hear the water flowing the music, I think, is top rate. Um, there's incense, and so you kind of get a little bit of the smell kind of thing going on there. Um, the different range of sounds, I think, be it the the magnification of of song that's there, um, or clear hearing of sermons, or even just like little things like there's like a little gong kind of thing that we hear after sermons, which is the, like I soak all that in. Um, in a in a way that i d I'm not sure every space I would. Uh, two, I think, you know, Dean Judy's development of the liturgy there it has spoken to me. Uh, the the rhythm of the worship, the physic the physicality of the worship, the um the intersection of kind of old and new. I really love that. Uh I think the more than anything else is just my relationship with the Dean, uh, yeah. who I've known for uh, 21 years at this point, we did our summer um, sort of clinical pastoral education, kind of a chaplaincy. CPE. CPE. Uh, summer internship together and then became family way back then. And uh, I was delighted when she sort of was at the cathedral and then came back to the cathedral as dean. I think just her presence was probably the first magnet for me. Um, they're in its proximity to the university and the city a friend um,
1: invited you to church <laughs> which is so often the way it happens that <laughs> people come in there how about how about you um that's a really good question um I'm very grateful um listeners of the the pod know that I'm in recent recovery uh, from from bike accident also um connected to CPE um and I, I'm also very grateful to the Dean, um, to, to Dean Judy on a, on a number of things of being my, uh, being my mentoring priest when I was in, uh, the ordination process in the Episcopal Church in the past, um, in providing just top-notch, empathetic, um, deeply compassionate pastoral care throughout seminary and then throughout recovery so far, um, and then, um, having a place that's committed to a lot of the values we've talked about so far about standing in the uncomfortable sort of middle places and trying to, trying to be present and trying to listen, Um, as you've said, when even when we can't necessarily give yeses or nos, um, directly, or if it has to be a gentle, no, um, the power, the power of the gentle, no, um, there, there's a, there's another podcast hour by itself, um, which would, <laughs> power of the gentle, no, the power of the gentle, no. Um, so those are the, those are the, the couple of the start of 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 that that iceberg of, of gratitude um yeah um and the music too um like i i have to shout out hopefully future guest uh tom lloyd whom we have to we have to acknowledge um curates the the art installations um directs the choir um yeah uh, yes um Uh, professor of music emeritus at Haverford and Bryn Mawr College is, um, Grammy nominated artist for his work with Bonhoeffer. Um, yeah. So, um, the, uh, all of those, all of those wonderful honorifics, also a Yale, a Yale seminary person, um, Yale school of music alum. Um, yeah. Um, the the multisensory as well um mm-hmm. yeah dope thank you for all of the time that you spent with us today um we are just nearing the end of our time so we have just one last question that we ask everybody as they're, they're ending and we're finishing up um that we that uh that we end every show with and that's what do you want the world to look like when you're done with it
0: That's a beautiful question. I think my hope and prayer for the world when I'm transitioning is that it would be a place driven more by love and less by fear. And love for each other and love for creation, love for the planet. A special love for the most vulnerable. I think I would hope for a world that is far uh, less violent, far more uh, economically cooperative and just kinder. So I think my, most of my hopes are behavioral and relational. And I think that from that, a different physical world will emerge. Um, and I have hope, I really do think we are closer to that than we are to the opposite. Thanks so much for being with us today. Blessing to be with you, fam. You already know.
1: My thanks to my guest, the Reverend Chaz Howard, PhD. You can buy Chaz's most recent book, The Bottom, A Theopoetic of the Streets, wherever books are sold. And you can follow Chaz on Instagram at chaz.howard. Thank you so much for tuning in to Uncommon Good with Polly Reese. This program is produced in Southwest Philadelphia on the unceded land of the Lenny Lenape tribe and the Black Bottom community. Our associate producers are Willa Jaffe and Kia Watkins. If you enjoyed listening to the show, please support us by leaving us a five-star review and a comment and subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps people find us. Uncommon Good is also available on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram at Uncommon Good Pod. Follow us there for closed captioned video content and more goodies. We love questions and feedback. You can send us a DM on social media or an email at uncommongoodpod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, wishing you every uncommon good to do your uncommon good to be the uncommon good.